Hosea chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 this evening, and I'll read those verses for us now. So, Hosea chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel knows. The prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is insane, because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways, enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we know that if we remained in our sins, if we were not cleansed in the blood of Christ, we know that we are unworthy to walk in your house. And we are thankful so much for Christ and his perfect sacrifice, saying that he is that acceptable sacrifice, who is that once-for-all sacrifice for his people. Thank you that he is that once-for-all-time sacrifice, who is... Uh, died, the one who has turned away your wrath, that we might walk with you. And we are thankful that we are washed. We are thankful that we are cleansed, that we are truly washed white as snow in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we get to come and worship you. Thank you that we are included in the multitude, that we are included in the worship of you. And we're thankful that that enmity that was between you and us has been taken away in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But we pray that tonight you would send forth your spirit to give us understanding of what your word says, to give us an understanding of the seriousness of being excluded from the house of God and the seriousness of having enmity with God. Help us to see, help us to understand, help us to better know what is going on in your word, that we might be watchful in our own hearts, in our own remaining corruption, but help us to be reminded that our salvation is found in Christ Jesus and that we can confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So we pray that tonight would be a night of encouragement for those that need encouragement and a night of rebuking for those that need rebuking, a night of uplifting for those that need to be uplifted. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save their souls. Once again, we need your spirit. Please send it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us in your word this night. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, times when the people of God are not persecuted ought to be a great time of rejoicing. In those times, it should be that the churches are full because we have freedom to worship the Lord God Most High without threat from being oppressed by the government. But there is a problem. Throughout history, throughout the generations, throughout the ages, most of those times of peace have led to times of complacency in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The things that matter most no longer matter at all, or the things that matter most begin to matter less and less. Things are easy. We can focus on trivial things rather than on the things that ought to take our attention, ought to be the focus of our lives. 
Complacency is seen throughout the ages, and it is seen in waning commitment to religion in general, but also in a waning commitment to what is true worship. And that's a very clear problem here tonight with what we see for the, with the people of Israel in Hosea chapter 9. It is present with these people at the time of the prophet Hosea. There was the warning of Assyria's coming, the warning of the superpower that would come and take them, and eventually Assyria would come. But perhaps now there is a time of reprieve. There seems to be a time of celebration. The people seem to be rejoicing, but in reality they must recognize the one whom they stand, uh, before whom they stand under judgment. And this idea of do not rejoice in verse 1 seems to indicate and there's enough of a reprieve, enough of a reprieve from the threat that the people begin to rejoice, but they still do not do so in a way that is pleasing to God. Remember, that's been a problem. Times of prosperity under Jeroboam II, times of economic prosperity, the people still engage in idolatry. The people still engage in harlotry. Then there are times of political turmoil. There are many assassinations that happen. There's king after king. And yet even then, the people of God still engage in wickedness and still engage in idolatry and harlotry. The people truly are desperately wicked. Truly, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And certainly the people of Israel mirrored that for us are a good example of that very reality. Now remember, Hosea is one of the first prophets. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom. This is the time of the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and he's prophesying to that northern kingdom. And remember, his marriage, which is what we remember most often from the book of Hosea, is a picture, uh, is, is the message of the book. It is a picture uh, the Hosea's marriage is a, the message is a picture of Israel's spiritual adultery and what Yahweh will do to that adulterous wife. Now we're in the section that deals with a forgetful people. We've seen that they're a fair weather people. They're as faithful as a cloud. We've seen they're a senseless people. They're as dumb as doves. And then we, last time we saw that they're an unaware people. And that then continues because they now seem to be a joyful people. Their joy continues to manifest, though, their ignorance of what their real problem is. And their real problem is provoking the Lord God to anger. The real problem is defiling the house of the Lord. That is the main problem that we see here. They continue to defile the house of the Lord. That has been a key problem throughout this entire book. We've seen again and again the importance of worship in Israel. That should teach us something about the importance of worship under the new covenant as well. And that profane worship was one that looked like the nations around them. They want to be like their neighbors. They want to receive blessings. They want to receive grain and wine. And so they worship like the neighbors, their neighbors around them. And it was very clear. It was contrary to the word of God. And as they do that, as they engage in wickedness, as they engage in spiritual harlotry, we see that they continually defile the house of the Lord. They continually make themselves unclean. They continually make the land unclean. And they continually make the house of the Lord unclean. And so what's Yahweh going to do? He is going to send them to a place where they're going to eat things that are defiled. They have defiled the house of the Lord. He has given them distinctives on how they're supposed to live, on how they're supposed to worship. And as judgment and as punishment, he's going to send them to a place where they're going to eat things that are defiling to them, unclean things that they are not supposed to eat. 
So really, why is it a time of rejoicing? Why are the people celebrating? Why are the people engaging in a festival? Because as we see in verses 1 through 9, at a time of rejoicing, Yahweh charges the people not to rejoice. Do not rejoice. This is not the time for rejoicing. This is not the time for a festival. And the reason is Assyria is not the problem. It is Israel's harlotry. Assyria is not the issue. They have sinned against God most high. And even though there's a reprieve with respect to Assyria, they are still under the judgment of God. They're still violating the the covenant that God had made with them. And we especially see in these verses what harlotry will bring. Not rejoicing, but it's going to bring exclusion. Not rejoicing, but it's going to bring enmity. And those are my two points this evening. We'll see excluded from Yahweh's house, verses 1 through 6. And secondly, we'll see enmity with Yahweh's house, verses 7 through 9. Excluded from Yahweh's house, verses 1 through 6. And enmity from Yah- with Yahweh's house, verses 7 through 9. So let's first look at excluded from Yahweh's house in verses 1 through 6. And notice we see fornication in Yahweh's house in verses 1 and 2. Now it continues on with what is said in chapter 8. Again, we've seen the unawareness of the people of God. They're unaware of God's goodness, and they're unaware of what is good before God Most High. And they're unaware then of the judgment that God is going to bring upon them. And it continues here for us. They're unaware of what God is going to do. They think everything's fine. And so they go and have a festival. And so God then commands and says in verse 1, Do not rejoice. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples. The implication seems to be that Israel is having a religious festival. And there are many religious festivals under the Old Covenant that signify the blessings of Yahweh, signifies his guiding, signifies his salvation, signifies his passing over, wonderful things that Yahweh has done. And perhaps what could be in view here, what festival they are celebrating, is that of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, that gathering in the wilderness. And what's very fascinating The Feast of Booths was supposed to be celebrated on the seventh month. You know what Jeroboam does? Jeroboam the first does. He's the one where we see the kingdom divided. There's Rehoboam in the south. That's Solomon's son. And Jeroboam sets up another kingdom in the north. And he sets up golden calves. And you know when they celebrate that? The eighth month. (laughs) He changes it to the eighth month. month. He changes the time of that celebration. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 12. As the, 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 the kingdom is severed, the kingdom is divided, the kingdom is torn. And we see Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. He didn't want the people to go to Judah lest they defect and be part of Judah. And so he sets up a rival feast. And so he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places, which he had made. He is making a rival to Shiloh. God had said, a rival to Jerusalem, sorry. God had said, this is the place I'm going to worship. This is the place where I'm going to set my house. And what does Jeroboam do? That's one reason why all the kings in the north are all wicked kings, because they can't truly ever worship God, because that, under the old covenant, was at Jerusalem. And so he instills and 
uh, and, and installs and creates this rival place. Verse 33, so he made offerings on the altar, which he made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the month which, month which he had devised in his own heart, in his own heart, and he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So they're having a celebration. They're having a time of rejoicing. It could also be that they're thrilled that Assyria has uh, just backed things down just a little bit. So they are rejoicing. And so Yahweh says, do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples. There are two ways to take it. I think it's a both and sort of way to take it. Number one, it's not a time to rejoice. You might have your festival. You might think think things are fine. Everything's hunky-dory. But do not rejoice. It is not a time for rejoicing. But also notice as well, it's not just not a time for rejoicing. If you were to rejoice, it should be in a way that is pleasing to God rather than a way that is like the nations around them. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like the other peoples. This is further explained in the verses that follow. Israel was not supposed to defile the household of God and be like the other nations. Israel is not supposed to worship like the other nations. Israel is not supposed to rejoice like the other nations. They were supposed to be different and they were supposed to be set apart. They weren't supposed to gyrate. They weren't supposed to copulate in order to receive fertility from the fertility god Baal. And as we've been seeing in the book of Judges, what Baal did and the way in which fertility came, that is livestock, crop, and uh, actual fertility, that is children and riches and all sorts of things, is Baal had to copulate with his consort, namely Asherah. So Baal had to engage in fornication with her. And when he was doing that, that's when the good things fell from heaven. And so what did the nations do? What did the pagans do? Well, they tried to kind of give Baal and Asherah a bit of a nudge. That's what their fornication was. That's what temple prostitution was. That's what that fornication was at the temple to try to get Baal and Asherah to engage in something that they should not be doing. But that was according to a pagan way. And so Israel is not supposed to be like them. Israel is not supposed to rejoice at this time or rejoice even in a way like the nations around them. For he goes on to say, why? Because of your harlotry. This has been that key theme throughout the book. For you have played the harlot against your God. They've engaged in adultery. They've engaged in wickedness. They've had this loving husband, this kind husband. And Israel as the wife continually commits adultery. Israel did it on the wedding night with the golden calf, and Israel has continued to do that throughout their history. See how wretched the people of Israel are? See how there is no one righteous, no, not one? See how our, our, our hearts are like idol factories? Very clear with the people of Israel. You have played the harlot against your God, and he goes on to describe further what that means. And again, it shows Israel is unaware. They're unaware that their festivals continue to provoke the Lord God to anger. And there is some potent language here. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. That is, you have engaged and you have, it's a description of a whore's wages. They had no lovers in chapter 8. No one loved them. And so now what are they doing? They're hiring themselves out. 
They're hiring themselves out for things. They're hiring themselves out for grain. They are functioning like a prostitute. And notice what they're getting. Grain. That's it. That's why they're engaging in their wickedness. They just want grain. And so they're going to function. They're going to sell themselves. They're going to make love for hire on every threshing floor. And threshing floors were high places. Threshing floors certainly carried the idea of the importance of grain. That's what they were trying to get. But it probably was a good place to have an assembly. And notice all of them. Israel is engaging in fornication at all of these places. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. Gill says, alluding to the hire of a harlot, prostituting herself for it on a corn floor or anywhere else, and that for a measure of corn or for bread. It may point either at their giving the times of their corn floors to their idols instead of giving them to the Lord or to their ascribing their plenty of corn and all good things to their worship of them, which they called their rewards or hires their lovers gave them, or to their erecting of altars on their corn floors. However way you take it, it is idolatry. However way you take it, it is harlotry. However way you take it, it is an apt description of the seriousness of Israel's sin. And as they try to engage in this uh, sort of worship to try and get grain and wine, notice it's not going to happen. Verse 3, the result is the things that they want, the things that they do to bring their intended desire are not going to happen. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them. And the new wine shall fail in her. Whatever they do, whatever wickedness they engage in, it will not work. Whatever type of worship, whatever manipulation they are trying to do to try and manipulate the gods and to manipulate God, it will not work. God knows, God sees, it is not a time for rejoicing. There is fornication in Yahweh's house. And as a result, they're going to be excluded from Yahweh's house. And we see this in verses 3 through 6. And in verses 3 and 4, we see how they're going to be excluded from the land. And a lot of purity system type language here, a lot of sacrificial system language here. A lot of the things that were supposed to be the thing that set Israel apart, those things have been defiled and those things are now going to be removed. So verse 3, they have a land, but they shall not dwell in it. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land. It is Yahweh's land, not Israel's. It is the Lord's land. It is not Baal's. It is God's land. God gave it to them and God will kick them out. <laughs> God provided it for them. God then brought them into that land. And God has said, if you don't do what I say, I'm, I'm going to kick you out. And what does God do? He kicks them out of that land. They have defiled it. They've been wicked. They've been vile. And God's going to kick them out of that place. And, they, and Ephraim shall return to Egypt. And what's interesting, this return to Egypt has come up a lot in the past couple of weeks. It's a reversal of the Exodus, isn't it? How is it that they return to Egypt? It's by way of Assyria. They go into captivity. In Egypt, they were in captivity. In Egypt, they were in bondage. In Egypt, they were in slavery. But God delivered them. But now, because of their wickedness, God is going to what? He's going to send them back. They're going to return to Egypt. And that return to Egypt does refer to Assyria primarily. Certainly, uh, the, uh, historically as well, that some of the people thought they could flee to Egypt. 
But in reality, God takes Israel by way of Assyria. He sends them into captivity by way of Assyria in the north and Babylon in the south later on. And remember, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, is taken in 722 by Assyria, and Jerusalem is taken in 586 by Babylon. So there's going to be this reversal of the Exodus, this reversal as they return to Egypt, which makes chapter 11 all the more remarkable. When we come to the important prophetic fulfillment in Christ Jesus, when Israel was a child, I loved him out of Egypt, I called my son. So a lot of warning, a lot of indicting, a lot of chiding, but there is some encouragement that we see uh, in this connection with Egypt as well, which we'll see more of when we get to chapter 11. But for now, they're going to return to Egypt. And notice what they're going to do in Egypt. Verse 3. They shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Remember, these unclean things, that the, this, the, the, the food laws, was meant to be part of how Israel was distinct. We must consider it according to the Old Covenant. We must consider it according to that Mosaic Covenant as, as it is laid out in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Exodus as well. The, the, what they ate was a sign of their distinctiveness from the nations around them. How they worshipped was a sign of their distinctiveness from the nations around them. Doesn't mean we can't have beef. We can enjoy beef. But we need to understand what it meant for them. It was how they walked with God. Again, Leviticus is all about how one approaches God by way of sacrifice. And how one walks with God by way of cleansing. And thankfully we have that in Jesus Christ. In his sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, we are washed. We are cleansed in him, and we can walk with God most high. We are not excluded from his house. But Israel is going to be excluded. They shall go into Assyria, and they're going to eat some unclean things there. They will no longer be holy as he is holy. Because when they go into Assyria, they can't observe those laws in the land. Brother, when they go into Assyria, no more sacrifices. When they go to Assyria, no more ceremonial laws because the covenant has been broken. There's going to be foreign food. There's going to be things in that land that they do not enjoy and do not like, and mainly for religious purposes, for religious significance. There's a lot of foods we have to be prepared for when we go to a foreign country, things we have to watch out for, things that we're kind of concerned about, and you don't want to offend people, so you go there, you have to try it. And then you feel gross after you try it because you're not used to that sort of thing. It's kind of like that, but worse. Because it has religious significance, doesn't it? There's religious concerns. Religious, it has religious significance. They're no longer the people of God. They're no longer under that covenant with God, under that old covenant. They shall eat unclean things in Assyria. And the problems abound. They won't be able to sacrifice to God. They will no longer have the way in which they walk with God, and they're no longer going to be able to sacrifice. Verse 4, they shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, because they can't. There's no place to do it. Nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. Not only, can't they, not only is it the case that they can't offer sacrifices, but if they did, it would not be pleasing to the Lord God Most High. It would not be honoring to him. It would be unacceptable. We've seen how their sacrifices are unacceptable in chapter 8. They think, well, I can still come sacrifice to God. I can sacrifice to Baal and to Yahweh all at the same time. But it is un, 
acceptable to God most high. And so when they engage in the wine offering, when they engage in the grain offering, it is going to be like the bread of mourners. It shall be like the bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled. They shall be dirty. They shall be filthy. One cannot walk with God when one is defiled. One cannot walk with God when one is covered in filth. That's why we need Christ Jesus to justify us and to sanctify us, to cleanse us and wash us in his blood that we might be pure in him. That's why flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We have a heavenly body that awaits us. The new heavens and new earth is going to be a place that is without sin and a place that is perfectly pure. Because God cannot walk with things that are defiled. What does that say about us in Christ? About the privilege it is to be in Christ. The privilege it is to walk with him. We are washed and cleansed in Christ Jesus. We are no longer defiled in, him, uh, in our sin, but we are washed in Christ Jesus and we can walk with God. But for Israel, they're like the bread of mourners, those who are near a dead body and a dead body defiles. That's what that means. Their sacrifice is going to be uh, useless. Their sacrifice is going to be defiled. They have defiled themselves as they defile God's house. And then the bread and the grain offering has, uh, will no longer carry any religious significance, just sustenance. For their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. They shall be excluded from Yahweh's house, excluded from the land, excluded from right worship. And bread will no longer carry religious significance with the grain offering. It's just for food. That's all it is. That's all it will be for Israel when they go into captivity. And not only that, not only will they be excluded from the land, but they're going to be excluded from rejoicing. Verses 5 and 6. Their gatherings will be taken away. What will you do in the appointed day? In the day of the feast of the Lord, for indeed they are gone because of destruction. They were complacent when it comes to proper gathering. They were defiling the proper gathering and when that happens, what does Yahweh do? He takes it away. That's what he does. He takes it away. Israel is no longer a separate nation. Israel is no longer the people of God. There is a remnant whom God will save, but that comes by way of the new covenant. That comes by virtue of the new covenant. The old covenant is obsolete once they're kicked into the, the land. Once they are sent into the land, the Pharisees then try to, in that second temple period, try to make sure, try to almost resurrect it, but they cannot do it. But when they do it, they use man-made laws instead of God's law. And so that's why, too, when we come to the Olivet Discourse, when we come to certain passages in the New Testament, God is doing away with Israel. Israel is no longer an ethnic, as an ethnic people, the people of God. Those who are the people of God are those who are in Christ Jesus. That is Romans 9. That is what we just read in Romans 9. Not all Israel is Israel. What's he trying to point out there for us? That it's not based on ethnic descent, but based upon faith in Christ Jesus. The gatherings, the blessedness of worship that they took for granted shall be removed because of Assyria's invasion. For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. God has removed it. God has sent them into, into captivity. 
and they no longer have those things that set them apart. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Destruction looms. Nettles shall possess their values of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents, all signs of curse. Sent back to Egypt, and they shall feel the effects of that curse. Think of Genesis chapter 3 and the effects on Adam with the curse. Thorns, nettles shall possess their values of silver. Thorns shall be in their tent. They're going to be an excluded people because what they engage in was pagan worship. That is the problem, isn't it? That is the application, the problem of pagan worship. And the sad thing is Israel doesn't realize they're engaging in pagan worship. You know what pagan worship is? It's all about us. Pagan worship is all about manipulating God to get something rather than true and right worship is to praise God for what God has done for us. We don't come to manipulate God. We come to sing praises to God most high. And yet God is still pleased to work in us, to nourish us, to strengthen us, to uplift us, to challenge us as we come into his house. We must not take the gatherings of the people of God for granted. And complacency manifests in our time as well, manifests in our lack of diligence in the things of God. Again, throughout history, typically what happens in times of peace is theology goes down the drain. People stop confessing the things that are true. It's all about love. It's all about being united. Let's just do away with the Trinity and do away with who Christ is. We don't have to do theology or doctrine or that sort of stuff. Let's just do away with all that stuff. Let's then start asking the world, world, what would you like? How would you like to worship God most high? What would draw you into the house of God? Rather than asking God what God uh, wishes when it comes to his worship. So it manifests in complacency. It manifests in thinking we can use the world's ways as worship to God. But in reality, it really does become paganism. We do not manipulate God. We can never manipulate God. God does not need our worship, Acts chapter 17. But thankfully, because we've been saved by God, because we are the pot, we are the vessel, we ought to worship the potter. We ought to worship God most high because he is God and we are man. That is a problem. Now, brethren, again, the tone, I always struggle with tone, especially when the tone of the text is scolding, isn't it? The tone of the text is warning. The tone of the text is chiding. The tone of the text is making sure people understand the serious reality of what uh, idolatry is and make us understand the importance of worship. However, I do want to encourage. You see, brethren, there is a blessing to be able to gather as the people of God, and there is the blessing of true worship. And it warms my heart when I see people understand that. Can I just say that? Again, I've scolded a lot the past couple weeks. I reminded myself this past week, I need to encourage those who do understand this. It's a blessing to see people when, you know, they come in and they hear for the first time, you should really come to two services. (laughs) You should come and worship and gather on the Lord's Day. And they just come and they just listen and they pay attention and, and they start coming. Brethren, that is my pride and joy. That is what warms my heart the most when people come in and they understand and they get it. And they come and understand the importance of the worship of God. And if you come in the evening, you understand that. (laughs) And you understand the importance of that. So I want to give you guys some encouragement. Don't waver in these 
things. Because the blessing is we are not excluded from the worship of God. We are not excluded from the house of God. It is a blessing to be able to gather as the people of God. We come to Mount Zion to worship God most high, who is that all-consuming fire, but we worship him acceptably. So brethren, be encouraged, be uplifted. It is a blessing to be able to gather with the people of God. I'd rather see faithfulness over the long haul rather than guys that come in and just go, wow, this is the best church ever and never come back. When people say that to me, by the way, the best church, most wonderful preaching, wonderful worship, I'm like, you're never going to come back. And most of the time I'm right. I just want people to come in and they just, okay, interesting, pay attention. And if people think it's the worst, I know they're not coming back either. But when people come in and they're just kind of steady Eddie and they just start coming every week, they start coming in the morning and then they start hearing and understanding and asking questions and they start coming in the evening. But that's what we want to see. We want to see people get it and understand it. And if you understand that, praise God and don't stop understanding that because you guys are a blessing to me. And those and other who don't come to the evening as well, I still love you and you're still a blessing to me as well. But please come in the evening uh, as well. So it's a blessing to be included because Israel was excluded from Yahweh's house. That was the warning. So that's excluded from Yahweh's house. Let's then look secondly at enmity with Yahweh's house, verses 7 through 9. Excluded, now enmity. Enmity just means hostility. And we see that enmity in verses 7 and 8, this enmity with Yahweh's house. And verse 7a, we see what enmity, what this hostility between God and man brings, and mainly primarily God to man. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel thinks Assyria has backed down, but Yahweh's visitation still remains. And he eventually does use Assyria as his instrument of judgment. And Israel knows. God has warned them. God has said, according to the terms of the covenant, God has been gracious. Here's what's going to happen. Repent. Here's what's going to happen. Repent. Here's what's going to happen. And Israel's going to know, and they're going to know by way of experience. And so when it happens, when a Samaria is taken, it should not be shocking to them. Because they've had warnings throughout. Israel is going to know the day of punishment shall come. The day of recompense has come as well. And what's interesting is Luke 21, 22, which is Luke's Olivet Discourse, quotes or alludes to what we see in Hosea 9, 7. And as I defended, when we looked at Mark's Olivet Discourse, I do believe the Olivet Discourse is talking about the destruction of the temple at AD 70, which gives the final death nail to the old covenant people. He gives that final death nail to ethnic Israel. Oh, if there was any semblance that they were the people of God, God removes that very thing because it paves way for the new. And we see in Luke 21, Verses 20 through 22. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Israel's judgment is near. And as we saw in Mark's gospel, Mark puts it in connection with Jesus uh, uh, um, turning over tables in the temple. Israel has engaged in abominations, idolatry, that leads to desolation. And so what's going to happen? They're going to see an abomination, Gentiles, the Romans, uh, who bring desolation. 
That's what the abomination of desolation means, the abomination that leads to desolation. And what we see with Luke 21, what we see in Hosea 9, what we see in other portions of Scripture, what we see with Stephen as he's preaching to the Jews, Israel has always been a stiff-necked people. Israel has always been a rebellious people. Israel's always been a wicked people. And so when Christ says, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it, it shouldn't be that surprising. Because Israel has always rejected the prophets. And then not only have they rejected the prophets, they rejected Christ Jesus. That's what the parable of the vine dressers teach us. They, he sends the son, and yet they kill him. And thankfully, he himself is the temple. That's why he's going to rebuild it in three days in his body. Not an actual, physical, literal temple, but Christ himself is the temple that the Old Testament temple has points forward to. But Old Covenant Israel, if a Jew wishes to be part of that, they must believe by faith, not based upon their ethnic descent. So, Jesus takes, verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That is a very clear allusion to the days of punishment in Hosea 9, 7. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows. Israel is wicked here in Hosea. Israel is wicked in 586. And Israel is wicked uh, in Jesus' day and in AD 70 as well. And God does away with the old to pave way for the new in Christ Jesus. So what enmity brings, enmity brings destruction. 722. 586 and AD 70 are all types of the day of the Lord, are all types of final judgment when Christ comes back and brings judgment to this world. We don't need to fear that day as the people of God, but he is going to come and he's going to bring judgment upon all those who reject Jesus as the Christ. That's what enmity brings. It is deserving of judgment. And notice why enmity comes in verses 7 and 8, 7b and 8. Now, it's difficult here with respect to who's talking. It could either refer to what Hosea says about the people, or it could refer to what the people say about Hosea. I think there's some interplay going on. And so I think the first sort of uh, sentence there, or the first clause there, the prophet is a fool. That's Hosea talking about the false teachers in Israel, because I think it goes with the prophet mentioned in verse 8. Not talking about Hosea, but talking about wicked leaders. Because the false prophets, ones who are only concerned about their own well-being, are just going to give the people what they want. And when the people are rejoicing, what do they want to hear? Everything's going to be fine. Isn't that what happens with Ahab? He asks a bunch of prophets... And they'll say, yeah, you're going to win the battle. And then Ahab says, have you asked Micaiah? And then, or, uh, and then, or, uh, being, um, or I guess they asked Ahab why he hasn't talked to Micaiah because he never tells Ahab what Ahab wants to hear. And so what does Micaiah do? First of all, there's a taunt. He says, everything's going to be fine. I love when Micaiah taunts him. And then he says, you're going to die in battle. See, he never says anything I want. 
You see, brethren, that's what happens, doesn't it? We, people want to hear what they want. They don't want to hear what they need. We're sometimes like that, whether we want to admit it or not. We need the encouragement. We need the uplifting. I believe in that. I want to encourage you. But brethren, we need to be kind of uh, rebuked as well, don't we? If you just want uplifting, I do want to provide that for you. But we're going to have to have some rebuke as well if we do things that are not uh, pleasing to the Lord God Most High and finding mercy and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Rebuke is good for us as well. If you just want to feel good, this is probably not the church for you. There are other places you could go because there are, we're going through the prophet Hosea is one reason. So the prophet is a fool. Don't, uh, and so the prophets are saying, don't listen to Hosea. Things are going to be fine. But then Hosea and then the people. So he's talking about the, the prophet is a fool. That's Hosea talking. And then now it's the people or the false prophets talking, saying the spiritual man is insane. They're saying, and they're talking about Hosea, yeah, Hosea's nuts. God is not going to bring judgment. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. That's probably what that means there. The spiritual man is insane. They think Hosea has gone nuts. So the prophet is a fool. The prophets are fools. The spiritual man is insane. And we see the reason why, because the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The people have transgressed the covenant. They have no idea what the covenant says. We see that in 8. I've, excuse me, I've written for him the great things of my law, but they considered it a strange thing. And they follow their own ways. They follow their own sins. They follow their own heart's desire rather than the things of God. So they can't discern what is true. They can't discern what is right. And they think that Hosea is the spiritual man, the spirit-sent man is insane. So they have iniquity and great enmity. There is hostility. There is the budding of heads, so to speak, between God and Israel, especially primarily God who removes himself. He has enmity because of the sins of, 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 of man. He must remove himself. That's why we need reconciliation. That's why we need Christ. To, uh, in Christ, God reconciles us to him in Christ Jesus because of enmity. And there is great enmity between Israel and Yahweh. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, distinguishing again between the true and the false prophet. The watchman, verse 8, of Ephraim is with my God is referring to the true prophets. The metaphor of watchman describes one who watches and is on guard. It is used of the disciples in Mark 13. They are watchmen. As we are waiting for Christ to come, as we are waiting for his return, there are men who speak to us the things of God. There are men who communicate to us the things of God. There are men who've been set apart by God Almighty to communicate the truth. That's what Hosea was supposed to uh, Hosea did. That's what Elijah did. That's what Elisha did. Those men were watchmen in the northern kingdom, right? When we, we love those stories, but that's all in the northern kingdom where there is no king who did right in the sight of the Lord. But Hosea is good. The watchman of Ephraim, the watchman of the northern kingdom is with my God. He is God's man. But the prophet, the false prophet, is a fowler's snare. He is one who catches birds in a trap or a snare. The one who's ensnaring people with wicked words. He's ensnaring in all of his ways. This is speaking about those false men and enmity in the house of his God. 
The prophet is in the house of my God. Prophet is the one who's right with, or uh, uh, Hosea is the one who's right with God. But the false prophet, there is enmity in the house of his God. There is enmity because of the corruption at Bethel. There is enmity because of the corruption of worship in Israel at this time. Henry says, note, wicked prophets are the worst of men. I agree. Their sins against God are most heinous and their plots against religion most dangerous. They may boast that they are watchmen, speculators, and as far as speculation goes, they may be right. And with my God may have their heads full of good notions, but look into their lives and they are the snare of a fowler in all their ways. Catching for themselves and making a prey of others, look into their hearts and they are hatred in the house of my God very malicious and spiteful against good ministers and good people. Woe unto thee, O land, unto thee, O church, that thou hast such watchmen, such prophets that are seers, but not doers. There is enmity in the house of his God. But then notice in verse 9, we see the corruption in Yahweh's house. There is a familiar corruption and a familiar remembrance. Notice the familiar corruption. They are deeply corrupted. The corruption has taken a deep root. And notice what it is compared to as in the days of Gibeah. We're going to get to this eventually in the book of Judges. But Judges 19 is what is referred to here. Judges 19 and 20. It's the civil war that happens in Israel because of Israel's wickedness. That's the cry at Gibeah, which is a city in Benjamin, that resembles Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the Levite and his concubine. Remember, they go to the town and the one guy says, come into my house. And then all the men come and they look and act just like Sodom, just like Gomorrah, just like those men. And the point of that is to see how quickly Israel, who is supposed to be the people of God, the holy people of God, have degenerated into being just like Sodom idolatry that leads to wickedness idolatry that leads to lewdness idolatry that leads to a heinous act and the serious thing about that that whole scenario is in judges 20 and it's just a parenthesis by the way it's just a little reminder an explanation and it says phineas was the high priest phineas was the priest in israel you know who phineas was he was aaron's grandson that is how quickly things degenerated in Israel because of their idolatry. Well, Phineas, who we saw in jo Joshua chapter 22, defending the zeal of the Lord, defending worship, Judges 20. There is this wicked crime that happens, and there is a civil war that happens in Israel. And the people of Israel, again, there is nothing new, is there? Israel is deep-seated in their corruption. They have been deep-seated throughout their generations and they are deep-seated here. And God, because of that, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. We saw that warning in Hosea 8. He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins because of their profane sacrifice, because of their profane and wickedness uh, and wicked idolatry, because of their spiritual harlotry. Now, again, we've seen a lot throughout there's comparisons and juxtapositions to teach us the beauties of the new covenant we've talked about this before the beauties of the new covenant the promise of the new covenant under the old he remembers their sins under the new what is the promise their sins i will remember no more that is the comfort of being found in christ 
why would anybody want to go back to the old covenant? I mean, when you read this, <laughs> when you read how they couldn't keep it, when we are found in Christ and we are part of that new covenant and being found in him. That is the comfort that I think that we, as we compare the old and the new, that we can see he will remember their iniquity, but for the new covenant, their sins, he will remember no more, and he will not punish us for our sins because Christ has borne the punishment upon himself in our stead. And that's why the gospel of Christ needs to be defended. That's why the gospel of Christ is vital. That's why teaching about Christ as the head of the church is important. Because the problem that we see, or the application we can draw, namely a problem, the problem of foolish leaders. There is a problem in our day as well. What makes one a spiritual leader? What makes one an elder or a deacon in the church of Jesus Christ? It's a misunderstanding of what the offices are and what the officers do. And if I were to ask you how many offices are there in the new covenant, you would say five five offices and you're probably confused but i'll explain to you there are the offices of the universal church and the offices of the local church the universal church is the elect from every generation who has been saved and there's the universal church that is present now the elect throughout all the ages and even presently now it is the whole of the people of god but there is the local expression of it in the local church and so there are offices of the universal church and the lower offices are encompassed by the higher office. The first office is whom? Christ as the head. Christ is the head of his church and he is the one who builds it. The second office under the universal church are apostles. They are apostles, not in a specific locale, but for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth and also the foundation which we have in the word of God. Ephesians 2.20, built upon the foundations of the apostles. And then the third office of the uh, universal church are prophets. New Testament prophets, but also certainly um, we're still, we believe in the importance of the old covenant prophets, but the New Testament prophets are in view. They help build that church. They help get it started and their authority still remains. And especially of the apostles and prophets, they're called extraordinarily they see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's why apostle, the office of apostle, is no longer. Because we are still rest upon that foundation that we have. And we no longer see apostles today. But we do believe in the offices of the local church. Elder and deacon. Elder slash pastor and deacon. Because elder slash pastor is referring to the same thing. There's not an elder board and a pastor. That's not how it works. Elder and pastor are the same. They're interchanged in the Bible to refer to the same position. Read Titus 1, read 1 Timothy 3, and read Acts 20, where shepherd, overseer, all three of the terms used to describe a pastor are used there to describe the same position and the same uh, office. And so that's why it's important when we call a pastor to vet them, to make sure they understand the word of God, to make sure they understand theological acumen and ability, to make sure they have the gifts and graces. And this last one is very important. Called and affirmed by the church to make sure the church recognizes that they have that gift. It's one thing to say, I can preach, I got the gift. It's another thing for the church to actually affirm it. That last one is vital and important because many men think they can preach, but they have not been affirmed by the church of the Lord Jesus 
Christ. And if we don't have men who are affirmed by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet try to still be leaders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to lead to many issues. Men who don't understand and men who can lead. And he will provide more as well. He'll provide other men who can fill this pulpit and he will do so in his timing. But we must recognize that it is Christ who does it and be encouraged by that very thing. Because thankfully, brethren, because there's no more enmity with God because of Christ Jesus, we dwell with God. And we dwell with God in the household of God. And we'll close just by reading 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And notice what the church is grounded in. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Brethren, if you believed upon Christ, your head, be encouraged that you are included in the people of God. Be encouraged that that enmity has been taken away. Be encouraged that you are reconciled to God and you shall worship God world without end. That is the privilege it is to worship our high king of heaven. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the salvation that you bring to your people. Thank you that we are not excluded and that enmity has been taken away. And thank you that we do dwell with you. Thank you that Christ is the head of the church and he builds his church. Thank you that he is the temple. And as we are part of his body, we are the temple as well. And we're thankful that as you dwell, you, that you do dwell with us as we are your temple. You do dwell with your people by your spirit. We are thankful that at Pentecost, that end time temple does come down. Uh, as the Spirit is poured out, that we might walk with you, that we might dwell with you. And as we see the seriousness, as we see the, the fallout of the old covenant violations of Israel, help us to appreciate the new covenant all the more. Help us to appreciate Christ, who is the once-for-all-time sacrifice. Help us to appreciate that we have been cleansed in the blood of Christ. Help us to appreciate that we walk with you. And help us to appreciate that we do worship you. Whatever country we live in, O oh Lord, we know that there are embassies throughout. We know that there are beacons of hope throughout. We know that there are true churches throughout. And we do know still that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And we pray that you would raise up men to plant more churches, to spread your gospel to the ends of the earth. And we know that Christ will do that. Thank you, Christ, for all that you've done. Thank you for your salvation that you've brought in our lives. Thank you for the raising up of this church. Thank you for the raising up of our sister churches. Thank you for the raising up of other good churches as well. And we do pray that you would continue to raise up men in our midst, men to remain here and help with the work, and men to be sent out uh, to spread your kingdom uh, to the ends of the earth. And thank you that, Christ, you will do it. For you're the one who does it. You're the one who is the head. You're the one who is commanded. And if you've commanded, we do not provide all that we need. So please give us all that we need. Please give us the encouragement and strength that we need. And we are so thankful of the blessing it is to call you as our God and to worship you, our triune God. So may we be encouraged by this as we go into the world. Give us the strength that we need.